many of us in this room would say that we were born in a hospital. Um, I was born on March 10th, 1961 at the Winchester Memorial Hospital in Winchester, Virginia. Um, Sarah was born on October the 2nd, and none of your business on the year, um, at the Troy Community Hospital in Troy, Pennsylvania. So many of you have similar stories, but then some of you, it may be different. Some of you, it may be different. Um, some of you perhaps would say that you were born at home. How many of you here today would say that, that you were born at home? I think that some of you might say that. Okay, there's, there's one at least. Some of you were born at home. Back in the day, that was a common thing. It, it truly was. You know, if you were between the ages of 75 and 90, you had the chance, a 50-50 chance of being born at home. You know, in the early 1900s, which there wasn't probably anybody here in the early 1900s, and if you are, you're a miracle, that's for sure. But in the early 1900s, most, most of the births took place at home. But by 1950, only 1% of the births happened at home. Now, I was looking up this statistic, and um, it, by 1938, it was about a 50-50 chance that you'd be born at home. So was anybody born back in the 1930s or 40s here? Okay, so that you had a 50-50 chance of being born at home. So that, that's, you know, that's quite the interesting then. But then again, maybe you're one of them. Maybe you're one of them. One of those special births that didn't make it to the hospital. Are you one of them? <laughs> Are you one of the, that didn't make it to the hospital? Instead, you were born in a taxi or a car or a plane or on a train or on a boat. Do you feel a little bit like Dr. Seuss coming on here, you know? <laughs> Again, there are so many stories of unusual births, and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna hit on a couple. One of those, one of those really kind of hit home for us here, um, last year. Listen to this story here. A mother, it says a mother delivered her own baby on the side of the road with five other kids, her five other kids in the car. Kentucky mom, and I got a picture of her right here. I don't know if you can see her right here, but this is a picture of her. Can you see her right there? Just that, that's, that's a picture of this lady here. This Kentucky mom, her name is Heather uh, Skates, was driving with her five children when labor started three weeks early, okay? She says, I was having light contractions before we left, so I figured I had time to run an errand. <laughs> Skates told told today.com in May. Eventually, Skates said she was forced to stop and deliver her baby on the side of the road. Not not home, you know, not the home uh, water birth that she had envisioned because that's what she had planned on doing, delivering it at home. She says, I pulled over, I assured the kids that everything was okay, and then I grabbed my phone and I got out of the van, Skates said, she went to the back of the van and she squatted down before her water broke. She said, I put my hand down there and his head started coming out of the, of my body. He said, she said, I didn't even have to push. It was so quick. I was on the phone with my husband, Nick, and 20 seconds later, I was telling him, he's here. <laughs> he's here. 
And so, and, and I, she, so when she got back into the car, she says, I think the kids were in shock. She said, <laughs> she said, she said that all five just sat quiet and didn't say a word. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. <laughs> Here's another mom. She gave birth on an airplane midair in January. Um, it was a red eye flight from Denver to Orlando. Uh, sleeping um, passenger Shakira Martin, who was 37 weeks pregnant, awoke with contractions. Her first thought was this, this cannot be. There is no way that I can have a baby on this plane, Martin told today, um, today Sam Brock. The, the airline was Frontier, Frontier Airlines. The Frontier Airlines flight crew guided Martin into the restroom while flight attendant uh, Diana Gerardo called for an emergency medical kit and, and removed her sweater to offer a, a baby blanket. Then when Martin's water broke, she was hovering over the toilet, and Gerardo knelt and caught the newborn baby in her bare hands. She, was, she wasn't responsive, um, but as the story goes, they, they did give her, they were able to get her breathing and everything, and... Um, and then the pilot ends up um, doing a doing a, a quick landing in Pensacola International Airport, where the um, the nurse helped uh, Martin um, deliver the placenta. Then they they left the plane, and it says in a follow up interview, um, her other children, um, ages nine, seven, and two, tell how grateful she was for the flight crew and assisting in the birth of her eleven month old uh, baby daughter, uh, Jalen. And her middle name is Sky. <laughs> and right there, right there, right there she is. I don't know if you can see that or not, but that's Jalen, Jalen Sky. Now the other, the other story, the last story I want to share with you kind of hits home with us. Um, uh, uh, Bryant and Stephanie, um, Stephanie Brooks, Bryant Martin uh, got married and, uh, they had their first child and then their second child. She says right here, she says, introducing Aaron Elizabeth Martin. She was born September the 8th at 7 p.m. or 7 a.m. in a van on the way to the hospital. She started her dramatic arrival during a thunder and lightning storm. After labor wasn't progressing fast enough, what did the hospital do? The hospital sent her home, okay? That happened to us a couple times. You know, a little after 6 a.m., all of a sudden things sped up quickly. We barely loaded in the van and when she decided to make her debut. About 10 minutes down the road, which is 20 minutes from the hospital, she magically made her entrance into this world um, still intact in the sack, which is a really awesome thing. That's, that's a, that's... So our, our doula uh, broke the sack, and after two precious coups, she let out the most beautiful cry. It was her first delivery, this doula, and she helped facilitate dad, mom, and baby to be uh, joyful and serene. It was truly remarkable. Now, is Sarah Renee, is she a doula? Johnston? That's what I thought. So they, they helped to, to deliver the baby, but this, this, um, this lady was able to help uh, Stephanie deliver that child in the van. So anyway, some, some of those, you know, th- these are just a couple stories. I read so many stories about different people and, um, how they they gave birth in different places and it's just unreal 
of the circumstances of birth for most of us probably wasn't that dramatic or unusual. Most of us experienced probably a very normal birth. But I want to tell you something. 2,000 years ago, a very uncommon birth took place. A very uncommon birth. One that has, I would, I don't even know if, I don't think it's ever been repeated. I hope it hasn't. One that has never been repeated. It was the birth of Jesus, the Son of God. It was a birth that literally changed the course of the world, changed the course of history. You know, the, and the, the little town of Bethlehem wasn't ready or even expecting this birth. They weren't expecting it at all. You know, with all the people in Bethlehem being there to register for the census, there ended up being no room, none, no room in Bethlehem. You know, Luke's gospel tells us that the the birth of Jesus Christ took place in an animal stable. You know, many have tried to explain what that might look like, whether it's a, like a cave or a barn or a stable, but we, it's just called, we call it a stable. God incarnate was born in, in a stable because Luke tells us in Luke chapter two, verse seven, that there was no room in the inn for him. Notice what it says there in Luke chapter two, verse seven. It says, and she gave birth to a son, her firstborn son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no no guest room available for them. And so as, as, as unique as the birth of Christ was, it, it, it really should have been something that would have been expected. It should have been expected. And the reason why it should have been expected is because centuries earlier, 700 years before the birth of Christ, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah wrote this when he said in, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And I'm, I'm going to move this out here because I can't, I don't know how you guys are seeing this. Let me move this out there like that. There we go. I want to read what you guys are reading there. So I'm going to pull it out here a little bit. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel. You know, but as unique as the uh, the birth of Christ was, you know, 700 years before Christ came to earth, the prophet Micah wrote this. And, and if you remember, the prophet Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. So they wrote about the same time. And it was about 700 years before Christ. And this is what Micah said. He said, but you, Bethlehem Epaphrath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, it says, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. That's what Micah chapter 2, verse 5 says. So throughout the Old Testament scriptures, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the, the birth of Christ was clearly predicted. So this should not have been a surprise for anybody. It was predicted. You know, the, the, the place of his birth, um, his name, his position, you know, all were recorded hundreds of years before Jesus was even born in Bethlehem. All of that was, was recorded before he was even born. You know, from the account in chapter, uh, Luke chapter two, we are given some insight into the secular setting that preceded the Savior's birth. Because see, in that day, Rome was the capital of the world and Latin was the official language. Caesar Augustus 
the supreme ruler of the, of the Roman Empire, sat in his palace on the Tiber River. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it tells us that the emperor, wanting to establish a basis for taxation, decreed that a census needed to be taken. And so because of that, that meant that every person in the empire had to be enrolled in his own town or his own city. And so that's why they had to go to Bethlehem. On the fringe of this great empire, this little village of Nazareth, the, the soldiers probably tacked a little sign up there that said, you know, this is what needs to be done. And, and Joseph, who was a, a builder, a carpenter, an obscure descendant of the great King David, was obliged to go to Bethlehem, the city of David, to register. Hundreds of years earlier, Micah had prophesied that Bethlehem, Bethlehem, was to be the place of Christ's birth. It's kind of interesting. 700 years before, this is what was said. And this is what happened 700 years later. That they were in Bethlehem for a census to be taken so that they could be born. The scripture proclaimed it to be so. And see, when Mary and Joseph arrived in the city, there was no room. You ever, you ever been out on a, um, a trip and you've, you've tried to find a place to, to sleep? Go to a, go to a hotel and you can't find any rooms? I know there was one time just, this was just last year when we pulled off of an intersection. We thought, okay, this will be good. There was nothing there. You know, and we were looking around. It took us like a half hour to find a place to stay, to sleep for that night. Of course, you know, there were plenty of rooms for the Roman soldiers that were there. You know, they, they, they were the ones who oppressed the people, but there was plenty of room for them. Uh, there was room for the, the public officials who, who were going to administer the census. Plenty of room for them. You know, there was room for the wealthy businessmen and the merchants. But for Mary and Joseph and our Savior to be born, there was no room at all. None. Folks, the sadness of those words, the, the sadness of those words, no room, no room in the end. In his book entitled, When Iron Gates, when, when Iron Gates Yield, this author, his name was Jeffrey Bull, tells of spending Christmas Eve in a Tibetan inn en route to a communist prison camp. And this is what he said. He says, as he walked into the stable to feed the horses and the mules, he said, my foot squashed in the manure and straw. He said, the horrible smell of the animals was nauseating. And I thought to myself, to think Christ came all the way from heaven to some wretched eastern stable. And what is more, he came for me. Think about that. He came for me. You know, how often, how often we beautify the manger scene. Look at this right here in the front here. First of all, it's unscriptural to begin with <laughs> because the wise men weren't at the manger scene there, you know, but, but that's, we Americanize everything there. But look how nice that is. They make it look so beautiful. We, how many of you have a manger scene at home? Okay, so we, we all, most of us do. 
Yeah, so, so they, they, they kind of beautify the manger scene. You know, we glorify the hay and the straw and the animals and the, and the shepherds around it and the wise men. We make it look so pretty, you know, and all the while we forget that the son of God was made to lie in a feeding trough of filthy cattle. That God incarnate was subjected to such abuse and scorn. Why? Why do you think that is? Well, it's because there was no room in the inn. There was no room in Bethlehem. And even greater sadness is this, uh, uh, that we need to recognize is that there was no room in the hearts of the people there for Jesus. That makes it even more difficult to understand, is that, uh, that there was no room in the hearts of the people, or to grass anyway. Reginald Heber said this, he, ca- he captured the true perspective of this when he wrote this. He said, cold on his cradle, the dewdrops are shining. Low lies his head with the beast of the stall. That's what he tells us. In Merson's painting entitled The Arrival at Bethlehem, he, this is the painting there. The Arrival at Bethlehem um, depicts a scene of, of deep shadows, cold stars, a, a lonely street, howling dogs, as a half-hearted or a hard-hearted innkeeper closes the door and turns a pregnant Mary away, saying that there is just no room here. You have to go down the street, see if there's something down there, because there's no room here. And obviously, there wasn't any room down the street because they ended up in a stable. Yes, I would say in the lowliest place in the world had to be a stable. The sinless king was born. For the son of God, the prince of peace, the great I am, there was no room. No room, of course not. But think of it another way. Think of it this way. How could there be sufficient room for the God-man? How? How could any earthly inn contain God? How could it? Whether an inn or a palace or a city, no place is large enough to hold the God of the universe. Here's what the Apostle John declares about Jesus. I love this passage of Scripture. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. What a great passage of scripture. Jesus, the God-man, the one who shared the glory of the eternal father before the world even existed, before it even existed, he who was present in eternity past, he who, who created the world and he hung the stars in place. How could there be no room for him? But there wasn't. There was no room. The apostle John also declares this about the Son of God. He, he was made flesh and he dwelt among us. Here's what he says in John chapter 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Wow. The God-man 
who said, let there be light, who, who spun the, 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 the world out of nothing, who scooped out the valleys and, and piled up the mountains. He became an infant that day. Do you understand that, that he became an infant that day? And there was no room. You know, in, in one sense, we say the, the whole world is too small to contain him. But in another sense, we have experienced his habitation within our own souls through the watery graves of baptism when we, re, when we receive the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. So yet, the whole world can't contain him, but we can contain him within ourselves because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. The songwriter, Stuart Hamblin, in his song, How Big Is God, says this. He says, he's big enough to fill the mighty universe, yet small enough to live within our hearts. That's how big. That's how small. So I guess probably the greatest or, or most important question that needs to be asked is this. Will you make room? Will you make room? Do you have room for Jesus? Consider this phrase in the conventional way. The Bible teaches us that there never was room for Jesus. Did you know that? The Bible teaches us that. From his lowly birth in a filthy stable to his burial in a borrowed tomb, there was no room. They had to borrow a tomb to bury him because there was no room. You know, as Joseph traveled to Bethlehem with Mary, I am sure he did not envision the problems that he would encounter. Surely there, there would be room for a woman in Mary's condition. There has to be. No one would turn away an expectant mother soon to give birth to a child. But as they approached the village that night, they could see the throngs of people that had crowded just about every nook and cranny of Bethlehem. I mean, they were everywhere. The hustle and the bustle of, of business that first Christmas Eve crowded out pretty much the very Savior of mankind. So my thought is this. How similar to the situation we find our world today. You know, Terry mentioned it earlier in our prayer time. Our world needs prayer because we have basically crowded out the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So how similar? To many, this day means nothing more than tinsel or garland, if you want to say. Gifts, Santa Claus, maybe another day off. That's it. There is no room for Jesus. And how tragic it was that night in Bethlehem and how tragic it is today. And it's still happening. It hasn't changed. But look a little further. When the wise men came to Jerusalem looking for the Christ child, and, and Ryan mentioned that this morning, there, there was, they were questioned by King Herod as to where Jesus could be found. Remember that? 
using the guise of wanting to worship Jesus also, Herod asked the wise men to return when they found where the young child was. But from that very moment, the wicked king began to secretly plot Jesus' death. He wanted to kill Jesus because he didn't want there to be another king to rival him. So for Herod, there was no room. There was no room for a newborn king. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, we read that when Herod realized the wise men would not return, here's what this man did. This is what he did. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time they had learned from the Magi. What is such a wonderful time for us every year gathering around with family and gathering around a Christmas tree and and sharing gifts during Jesus' time when he was born, this is the tragedy that took place. People lost their children two years and under. They were ordered to be killed because this man, this King Herod, didn't want or had no room for Jesus in his, in his life. That, to me, is pretty sad. You know, Herod could put out all the lights in Bethlehem. He, But you know what? No matter how hard he tried, he could not extinguish that shining star. You know, Herod, Herod could still the, all the infant voices, but he could not silence the angel singing. You know, he could, he could even kill all the young people, the, the, the young children, but he could not do away with the Son of God. He could not do that. Herod didn't want God to interfere with his personal plans. So what he did was he tried to shut Jesus out of his life because he had no room for Jesus, none whatsoever. And if you look even further, when Jesus first journeyed into Galilee to the city of Nazareth, he was again, you know, confronted with this idea that there was no room for him. In in Luke chapter 4, verse 29, we read that Christ's own countrymen didn't like what he said. And so what did they do? They tried to kill him. It says they got up, they drove him out of the town and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. They wanted to kill Jesus. His own countrymen rejected him. They didn't like what he had to say. They had no room for a carpenter's son. They would not believe that he was from God. And so what did they do? They tried to throw him off a cliff. But what does the scripture say in there? It says that they, he walked right through the middle of them. Never even, they never even touched him. God was protecting him. Wow. And again, in Luke chapter 8, verse 37, Jesus cast out the demons and the townspeople wanted him to leave. Notice what it says there. Then all the people of the region of Gennesaret said, asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and he left. So once again, there's another, they too had no room for Jesus. Everywhere Jesus went, every time he preached, in every place he he performed miracles, he was always met with this opposition. I'm not sure why, but he was always met with this opposition. So why do you think that is? 
Well, it's because the people were unwilling to accept and believe that this was the Son of God. They were willing to, they, they, they would not accept that. They could not allow the prophet, the, this prophet, they called him a prophet all the time. They could not allow this prophet to interfere with their religious rituals and their religious traditions. Their traditions were more important than Christ himself. And so they would not allow that. Their eyes were blinded. They had no room for Jesus. What an indictment. What an indictment these words bring. So as Jesus entered into those last hours, before he faced the cross, he was so alone. You know, there there was not even a disciple who had room for him. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane that night. He sweat, and, and it was as if there were drops of blood hitting the ground. I can't imagine the stress that he must have been experiencing. He prayed and he suffered all alone. My question is this. Have you ever gone through a period of time when you felt all alone? Have you? I know I have. And I'm pretty sure that many of you here today have faced that same situation where you just felt all alone. You know, and it wasn't even, it wasn't even about having a, a husband or a wife or, or children or whatever. You just went through that, that valley of the shadow of death all by yourself, all alone. Jesus did. The scripture tells us that he had no place to lay his head. The scripture tells us that the rocks were his pillow and the ground was his bed and he was all alone. It's interesting. We at times can feel very lonely. And I'm sure that Jesus did too. But despite this fact, and despite the fact that we are, that that sometimes what we do is we end up closing ourselves off to him. The interesting thing is this, is that Jesus doesn't give up. He never has and he never will. Jesus doesn't give up. Jesus is still there waiting for us to make room in our lives for him. He is. In the book of Revelation, which we studied this a few months ago, in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20, this is what it says. It says, here I am. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That's what he tells us. He calls, but we must answer. So let's go a little bit further in that one. Let's go a little bit more personal in that. He calls, but you and I must answer. He knocks, but you must make room for him and open the door of your life. See, God is all-powerful, and he could if he wanted to. He could force open the doors of your heart if he wanted to. He could do that, but he does not do that. He will not do that. Jesus could have been born in a kingly palace. The Savior could have summoned to earth legions of angelic armies to, to capture or destroy his tormentors, but he didn't do that. He never forces us to accept him. 
What he does is he stands at the door and he knocks. Patiently he waits for us to respond. Sometimes that response is a little bit longer in others than it is in others. Some in others. But oh, what a wonderful time this would be for any of us here to make room for Jesus. And maybe some of you, unfortunately, maybe some of you here today, I don't know you personally as far as, I mean, I do, but I don't. You don't know me. You do, but you really don't. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Maybe it's time for us to rekindle our relationship with him as we have kind of thrown it by the wayside because life happens. You know, life just happens. And, and it's easy to do that sometimes. It's easy to forget about certain things. It's easy to just put it aside because the spirit might be willing, but the flesh is always weak. Someday, my friends, death is going to come knocking. Death comes at a moment's notice and sometimes doesn't let us know it's even coming. You know, yesterday when I went back into atrial fib, I was really scared because this medicine is supposed to not do that. And and so what I did was I went back into the bedroom and I pulled out, I had these 50 milligrams. I take 100 milligrams twice a day. I pulled these 50 milligram pills out. And I was going to take one. And Sarah said, well, maybe you should call the doctors first and see. So I did. And they told me, do not take any more of that medicine. Because that that could kill you. You know, and that's scary stuff. Every single one of us in this room isn't guaranteed tomorrow. We're not even guaranteed the next minute. Death is going to come knocking Death comes at a moment's notice and sometimes doesn't even let us know that it's coming. But it is inevitable. It is inevitable and it is unrelenting. Guaranteed. And when that day dawns, there will be no more opportunities. There will be no more chances to open the door of your life to make room for Jesus Christ. It is done. It is finished. In his famous painting of Christ knocking at the door, artist Holman Hunt purposely omitted from the door a knob or a handle. Why? Well, we all know why. We've talked about this many times before. We all know why. It's because the handle is on the inside and you and you alone are the only ones that can open the door to your heart for Jesus to come in and take up his residency there. You're the only one. 2,000 years ago, on that first Christmas Eve, there was no room for Jesus, none. Throughout the centuries, men and women have rejected him. They have turned their backs on his love. But today, you today, you can change that. You can make room in your heart for God to write his story. You have the ability to be able to do that. Folks, unlike 
Christmas gifts under your tree, peace cannot be purchased with dollar bills. It cannot. It comes only by making room for Jesus in your life. Deliverance. Deliverance from years of bondage is found only in Him. Joy. Joy beyond measure comes only in knowing Jesus and inviting Him to live inside of you. And security, yes, security, you can be secure in that, is possible only when you trust and obey the one who holds your future in his hands. So today, as the band comes forward, I give you the opportunity. If you need to come and make room in your life for him to write his story, today, my question is this. Will you make room for him? Maybe you've already done that. Maybe you need to rekindle that. I don't know. But we offer that opportunity for you to come this morning.